I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To simplify it, anxiety is the check engine light on your brain's dashboard. So I don't like it when my check engine light comes on in my car. I don't like it when the smoke alarm goes off in my building because it's annoying. But I understand that the smoke alarm is a signal. It's an annoying signal, but it is in fact a signal. But because we're not taught that, we mistake the signal for the problem. Anxiety is not the pro, it's a problem. I understand it can be debilitating. I understand it can interfere with our ability to live our best lives and to show up for the people we love and meaningful work. I get, I, you know, I was captain of that team. I get it. However, anxiety is the signal that points toward the problem. Welcome to Self-Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests to better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. The Self-Helpful Podcast is presented by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping coaches. Visit Ziggler.com. Hello, self-helpful listeners. In this episode, anxiety is the body responding appropriately and how to get to the underlying cause. We're a culture caught in a plague of anxiety, but my guest here states nothing is wrong with anxiety. It's simply our bodies responding appropriately to a threat. Anxiety is not a mental health problem. It's simply a physical cue that allows us to know when we are out of alignment with external safety and or internal truth. Britt Frank is a licensed neuropsychotherapist and trauma expert who's trained in IFS, which is internal family systems and somatic experiencing. She is a speaker, an award-winning adjunct instructor at the University of Kansas, where she's taught classes on ethics, addiction, and clinical social work. Her new book is our muse for this series, and it's called The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. And 
I brought Britt to us to discuss her research on anxiety and body-based feeling or thought-based therapy. You're going to appreciate this. You're going to hear some paradigm-shifting information that will change how you view your anxiety and get you paying attention to your body's response in order to better manage your mental state. Britt, half my life is reading books. And of course, I've never had anybody on the show who doesn't have a great book with a great message. Yours, I need to create a definition for this category though. Yours is one that is so relatable and it is consistently paradigm shifting, which I love, which sells well, but it also intrigues us. And I found myself over and over in my notes saying this versus this and this versus this. And I think half my notes are this versus this. And, and I really appreciate, and I'm sure that's why your book is selling well and you are doing well in general is because you're helping us see things in a different way. So I'm excited to have this conversation because, uh, man, I got, I got a lot of things I want to ask more input on and clarity. So thank you for what you've done here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you reminded me speaking of the book, you know, in, in your own story, Britt, that, you know, we have, uh, let's take fitness trainers as an example. So we've got plenty who, you know, they grew up in sports. They've always been fit and they're helping us be fit. Great. And then you've got the one who wasn't and they were in some pretty dire straits and they maybe got a bad health diagnosis and they turned things around and now they want to help everybody, but they're the ones standing with the genes that are like, you know, five feet in diameter. And as a therapist, you reminded me of the latter that you got yourself into some pretty hard places uh, before you began the trajectory that brings you to where you are today. Give us a little insight into that. I mean, we don't have to tell your whole story, but just some of your early years that brought you into even pursuing some different, some solutions. And then ultimately to become a therapist yourself, you were the one who maybe needed therapy most. Is that fair? <laughs> I think that's a very generous description of my absolute train wreck of an excuse of a life prior to becoming a mental health professional with a book and all of the things. So like many people in the wellness world, I came to this work through my own recovery. I grew up in what looked like a normal family. And I found that if you don't, if you can't see the trauma, if you're not growing up in a overtly abusive environment, if you're not impoverished, if you're not worried about how you're going to get your next meal, everything else sort of gets lumped under the, well, this is just what's normal for us. And that's true with even things like sexual abuse, because what's normal is normal for a kid. And I grew up in a family that was don't talk, don't think, don't speak, don't feel. And yeah. you just sort of went along. It was sort of like very mob mentality. Don't question us, family loyalty is everything. What happens here stays here. We're the only people that you can trust. And that, as you can imagine, set me up to have a lot of difficulties later. And in fact, I thought I had a perfectly normal upbringing. It wasn't until later when I noticed I'm smoking meth and I am in these very chaotic relationships and I have eaten, you know, why all of a sudden, quote, is my life a disaster? And a therapist, when I was in my mid twenties, helped me backtrack. She's like, "But your your life was not healthy. Like this is trauma. No, that's not trauma. I was never in a war, and I was never, you know, none of those natural disaster. That's trauma. No, trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon for our brains. And there are a lot of ways trauma creeps into family systems. It certainly did mine. And so, in reaction to the trauma I survived as a child." 
not knowing that that was even considered trauma, I created a whole lot more. And yeah. so addictions, dysfunctions, depression, anxiety, all of the things. And so I was very fortunate to come to a therapist who taught me the type of work I now practice, which is not the typical, like mental health professionals are not taught that mental health is largely physiological. You have a brain, you have a nervous system, your brain does things. If you don't know how to drive, you're going to crash. And so I tell people I do driver's ed for the brain and it came from crashing into a lot of walls. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. I think people will relate to that. And I do like that you preface the book and you say it a couple times in there that it's not to discount the big T traumas, the people with life-threatening, horrific things, but a lot of your focus is on those who think that gosh, it feels like everything was okay. I don't have anything to point to. I don't want to go back and, and discredit my, you know, upbringing. I'm also over here and I'm struggling and we kind of, I, I think most everyone hopefully knows at this point that, and you're a product of the things in your past to such a great degree. And we need to go back and understand those. And I, I do like what you said about, and, and help me pull out the exact vernacular, but that a lot of it is, like you said, it's trauma is, is your brain's overwhelmed. You can't handle it. And you said later in the book, and when you don't have um, an, an empathetic ear, it wasn't that you said an empathetic, you know, source to help you work through that, whether it is some huge abuse tragedy or whatever, or if it's just a small, you know, seemingly small, but it's a disappointment. It's a, it's a loss. We talked recently about the loss of a dream and how that can be as dramatic and traumatic as literal abuse that when we don't have somebody help us work through it, that that is a viable trauma, not to make it, I almost thinking not to make it drama. You know, we don't have to over dramatize it, but it was, would you say, I mean, if it's a trauma, it, if it is, it is, it doesn't matter the size of it. I, and yes, and I, so trauma suddenly has become very trendy in the zeitgeist. So yeah. where nobody was talking about trauma, now everything is trauma and everything's a trigger and you know, the pendulum can tend to overcorrect itself. So yeah. instead of using that word trauma, because it tends to sort of trip people up, like, well, is this trauma? Do I love my parent? It's like, let's not call it trauma. Let's call it what it is physiologically, which is brain indigestion. You know, you don't get a conscious choice of whether your stomach is going to digest food. You could support your GI system, but ultimately you may get a stomach ache from eating an apple. You may not get sick from eating contaminated food because digestion is part of an autonomic function of your body and trauma is the same way. I may not think that a loss of a dream should mess me up. But again, I don't think that I should get a stomach ache from eating, you know, the same sandwich I've eaten every day. Nevertheless, I'm sick. So think of trauma just as your brain, for whatever reason, cannot metabolize an experience. I have found that the indigestion analogy tends to land better because that's for everyone. Not everyone is going to be puking in a toilet for 16 hours with food poisoning, but everyone knows what indigestion is like. And it's part of being human and trauma is not to compare our traumas, but trauma is largely the same thing. If you're a human with a pulse, if you go through adolescence, you're going to have some indigestion and let's just normalize it and deal with it instead of arguing about the semantics about it. Well, I, I appreciate that. And even that aspect, yeah, I'm not judging the trauma. We had, uh, I had, a, I had Peter Mutabazi on the show, uh, six months ago or so. And the guy's life, when you go through it, you know, being raised in, in Uganda out in the bush and beaten to death and run away. And he's a street kid living in the sewer. And you listen to it and go, holy smokes, I, I, how can I complain about anything? And we, that happens so often. And yet, it, it, like you said, but it's still, if something happened, 
whatever it is. And I love how you said, and I can't metabolize that experience. Then it just is go get help. And whether it's, yeah, the big T trauma, it, it, that, to that degree, it doesn't matter. I do want people to hear that biasly. I want men to hear that. I think we're the worst uh, tends to be, I think. So I want them to hear that. And I'm, of course, I want to dig in there. I do want to ask you out of my own curiosity, because so you know, my, my book that's just come out, What Drives You, focuses a lot on that often when we're in one place and we want to be another, between that is often not some Again, cataclysmic, gigantic thing. It can be a slow dawning. Was there that for you that you were going along with these issues? What was the, uh, was it a dawning point or some exciting incident or, or a big tragedy? What was it that you said, okay, something's got to give and you started the trajectory out? What was it? So it's so interesting. And like you said, if you talk to most people, we know what we're supposed to do. It's not that hard to know. Don't do the, you know, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Go to the gym. Working out is good. Yet there seems to be this other part that takes over our brain. I call it the inner boardroom. When they're fighting with each other, you're going to get stuck in that intention action gap. You know, my good intentions are here. The good outcome is here. And I am fully stuck in the middle. And once I, you know, once the boardroom all comes to an agreement, that's when change happens. And so for me, I, I, this is sounds so terrible, but it just is what it is. I justified my drug use largely by telling myself this wonderful little delusion that as long as somebody else is with me, it's not an addiction. So it's not an addiction. If I'm with other people, smoking meth isn't an addiction. If someone else, you know, is procuring them and, you know, getting the pipe set up. And then there was one morning and it was the night, and I still managed to show up for work every day. So it was the night before a big budget meeting when I worked in advertising. And I'm sitting in this filthy bathroom with drug paraphernalia everywhere, this rusty bathtub, the pipes in my hand, and there is not a soul to be found. And I wish I could say at that moment, the light switched. No, no, no. I got high that night. But at that moment, all of the voices in my head stopped arguing with each other. And they all said, okay, there's nobody to blame here. There's no excuses. You are doing this to yourself. You know, yes, bad things happen to you, but this situation is on you. It's because of you, which means you have the power to change it. And at that moment, all the voices stopped arguing and that was when the change process really began. Wow. And and of course I'm I'm sure the you know it wasn't just a consistent upward trajectory the ups and downs. That <laughs> no. was I mean out. Okay. And you know I'm I'm also curious about something that you shared in the book. So uh, most of my listeners know one of my dearest friends Dr. Randy James he's a medical doctor and a, a functional medicine uh, expert and you know he's bringing people in and they've got high blood pressure and different than the traditional doc instead of saying, you know, well, let's get you on some high blood pressure medication. I mean, if it's too high, they may need that. But his effort is to go, what's at the root cause? Your body is not lacking blood pressure medication. That's not the problem. Um, what's at the root cause of it? And try to get them off medications. That's functional medicine. And in, in, in a nutshell, a, a lot of ways get to the root cause so that we don't have to address the symptoms. However, there are absolutely long-term patients, lifetime patients of his who are going to be on whatever. It could be a heart medication. It could be whatever because there's a level of brokenness that they're not able to correct for whatever reason or their body's just that broken. I bring that up because even with your story, you share later that you are still on some meds. Um, talk about that. What? We, how would? How do you, because you you talked, well, I'll let you, I won't, I won't paraphrase. So tell <laughs> us about, yeah, your view, even that on medications and you're trying to get to healing. Well, shouldn't you have, so you don't need any medications ever, right? And you're saying, no, I'm still on some. Why? 
And a lot of people get very offended at that. Like, how could you be talking about healing yet you're on Medicaid? I don't like calling psych meds medicines because okay. I think of this work as it's P, you said, you know, sports analogies. It's PT for the brain. Just because you're going to PT doesn't mean that the injury doesn't need constant attention. You might need to brace something. You might need to constantly be going and getting work done. I think of this, I have severe mental illness on both sides of my family. I have genetic predispositions, like all of those things. So psych meds, it's not the fix all. It's not like if I'm on them, I'm fine. And if I'm off them, I'm not. It's just my brain is organized in a way where it needs to be braced so that I can do the work. I can't get the reps in. I can't log the miles that I need to log to make my life good if my brain's not supported. I tell people I take psych meds for the same reason I wear shoes because it's easier to walk around in the world with shoes on your feet so you're supported. Not the I am broken and I take meds because I have, I do not subscribe to the disease model of mental health. And a lot of people also get very offended by this, mm -hmm. but you know, a disease indicates pathology, something is wrong. If you get close enough to everyone's story, and I say this as a clinician of a decade plus my own mess of a life, everyone's story makes sense up close. So it's not that you have this disease, it's that your brain adapted to an injury. It's sort of like if you break your leg and you don't set the leg, it's going to become semi-functional, like you'll be able to limp, but I don't want to limp. I want to set the leg so that I can run at the speed that I want to run at. And psych meds do that for me. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and hit the disease model of that. And I, I, your perspective, again, looking at changing paradigms on anxiety and trauma, which we'll hit on trauma some more too, but especially on anxiety was significant because and again, it's it. That's why you're on the show. It hit me at a point where we've taught we. I say we, especially especially my friend Randy. We've talked about that, and we we talked about it in regards to stress. You know, we we give stress a bad name. We're saying no stress is is good. If I don't stress, if I don't you know stress my bicep, it doesn't get bigger. If I don't do it at all, well, if I want to stress, if I want it bigger, stress it. If I don't stress it at all, it's going to atrophy. Anybody who's had a cast knows that. You quick four six weeks, man, and you've lost all muscle tone in that. Stress is not bad. It's our in a bill, our mismanagement of stress. And so I feel like you brought that to anxiety in a way that I hadn't really thought through that anxiety is a good thing. It is doing, it is your body doing what it's supposed to do, but you go with the, but you take it from there, but yeah. we're not, we're not dealing with it. Well, yeah. And again, if you ask a hundred people, they'll tell you, I, ha I, them have an anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And this disease model of mental health is so antiquated. It comes from an old model before we had any of the brain science, before yeah. we understood the complex interplay of behavioral function and our environment. And to simplify it, anxiety is the check engine light on your brain's dashboard. So I don't like it when my check engine light comes on in my car. I don't like it when the smoke alarm goes off in my building because it's annoying, but I understand that the smoke alarm is a signal. It's an annoying signal, but it is in fact a signal. But because we're not taught that we mistake the signal for the problem. Anxiety is not the problem. It's a problem. I understand it can be debilitating. I understand it can interfere with our ability to live our best lives and to show up for the people we love and meaningful work. I 
I, you know, I was captain of that team. I get it. However, anxiety is the signal that points toward the problem. And if we don't know that we need to have smoke alarms, we need to have check engine lights. Otherwise, how are you going to know if your car is getting to a point where it's going to break down? And so when you re kind of relocate anxiety as an indicator light that your brain is on your side, like I was taught to absolutely be terrified of my own mind, be terrified of the thoughts in my head. Don't slow down because, oh my God, the things that are going to cross my mind once I slow down, eek. It's like, you don't have to be afraid of your own brain if you understand how it works. When I was three, I got in my father's car and put it in reverse and crashed. My crashing started very early in life. A three-year-old doesn't know how to drive a car, but that's not because the three-year-old has a disease and it's not because the car is disordered. It's because the skill set to drive was not present. And anxiety is just like driving a car. If you know how, how it works, if you know how to run a diagnostic, and if you don't take it to a shop, i.e. therapy, where someone fluent in these mechanics can tell you, oh, no, 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 here's here's what it's doing and here's the actual problem because then we can intervene on the root cause instead of on the symptom which symptom suppression is sometimes necessary life's busy if you've got five kids or nine kids and a busy job and you know you can't always get to root cause resolution but you know when people are like well i don't know why i'm feeling anxious well i don't know why the smoke alarm is going off either but let's get out of the building first then we can assess so don't start with why start with what yeah brit it's i mean it's a big deal i really want to expound on this and i'll probably make it the headline of the show that you know to some degree that anxiety again this is this is your message i've never heard anybody put it quite like that anxiety is not something that we go out and catch or it catches us like COVID. And that's how, and I think I have, I've still thought about that. And I didn't even realize that I'm looking at it as, yeah, I get an anxiety problem. Like it's this thing that, that attacked you like cancer or something like that, as opposed to you say, no, it's just an indicator light. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And even, you know, even to the idea of, and you have this in there, it can give us energy. I think I'm kind of addicted to anxiety. I like it. Even I, I've thought about that. I mean, I get kind of anxious about stuff I'm excited about and I like that and it kind of keeps me going. And it also wears me out and that's taken a long time to get there. But again, the anxiety is something that's an indicator light that we don't need to judge why, but if we're anxious, we're anxious at this. If the check engine light is on, the check engine light is on. And, and, and I honestly thought, Britt, I remember a truck I had at one point and stupid thing wouldn't go off. So I just took a piece of uh, electrical tape and taped over that check engine light because I didn't want to look at it. And how often we do that as opposed to, okay, what is at the root issue. So you're giving us a totally different perspective on anxiety. So we've got it. Somebody right now is dealing with it. They have it all the way. It's eating away at them. They may be on a med to to manage that, which they may need to, because otherwise they can't function. But then the point is doing the work to get down and going, okay. And how, I mean, how do you, I mean, of course you have a whole book on that folks go get the book and, and look at this, but I mean, at, at what's some highlight points for people to audit. Okay. Well, no, you bring it to, to that too and saying, okay, you can go ahead and get into this was the other big paradigm shift is it's not an emotion. You say anxiety is not an emotion. Everybody's going to stop right there. Really? It's a series of body sensations. Nobody's heard that. I've never heard that. If anybody else has heard it out there, you're unique. So go there, please. <laughs> 
and again, the language, I get really nitpicky about our language and it's not just to be snotty. It's because our brains are listening. Our yeah. brains are beautiful and they're really dumb sometimes because they take things literally. So when we mislabel things, our brain's going to hear it and then there's going to be a really big you know, miscommunication. And so it's so helpful to know anxiety is not a, an emotion. Anxiety is literally a series of body cues. It's, you know, sweaty palms. It's a tight stomach. It's a clenched jaw. Anxiety is a physiological reaction. Now, if I attach a story to that, like let's say I'm about to run a marathon and I have a clenched jaw and a, you know, sweaty palms and a tight stomach. Those, that's my physiology. If my story is I'm about to run this race, I'm going to feel excited. I'm going to feel pumped up. I'm going to feel like, like you said, like that good stress, that get up and go juice. But if I have the same series of physiology, sweaty palms, clenched jaw, tight stomach. If my story is I'm in an abusive relationship and my partner just came home drunk, it's the same physiology, but the story changes that emotion to fear. And so it's important to know that emotions are made from our body sensations that are paired with a story. And sometimes we can change or challenge the story and there's entire bodies of work based on just change your story. But sometimes you can't change the story and sometimes you don't know what the story is. So emotions are body sensations plus stories. And feelings, we call them feelings because we feel them. Feelings are also, they're just physiology, they're body sensations. So we don't get to emotions, fear, sadness, shame, guilt, love, joy. We don't get to that until we have a body sensation attached to a narrative, a story. So am I, what am I missing? Because <clears throat> I believe I am. When So even if I hear that and go, okay, right now I'm feeling anxious. Yeah, sweaty palms, tight stomach, whatever it may be. For me, you know, my shoulders are up at my ears usually. And I'm going, okay, now I'm aware of it. Okay, let the shoulders down, do some box breathing. So I'm addressing the body. That sounds good. But then I would hear you saying, yeah, but I'm st still, that's dealing with the symptom. I still haven't gone to going, why are my shoulders up? Why are my palms sweaty? Or I don't get sweaty palms. I get other stuff, you know, but why, why am I having this physical mm -hmm. manifestation? I'm not doing that and of course a lot of times we of course we don't know um well or would you say most of the time we do no right now if i really get into it, i'm thinking about this relationship or i'm thinking about you know i just got a text from so and so or just look at my bank account or uh you know whatever uh that that it's a fear and which i think you're generally saying our anxieties is that fair it's, it's generally coming from some kind of a fear-based issue there's like such a big rabbit hole that we can go down now with this idea that people say they, and myself included, we say we don't know. We say that we're baffled. But the fact is, is if we put the fire out in our brain and we slow down long enough to look at our lives, which is not always pleasant, it's almost never the case that it's not at least a little bit evident what the problem is. But I don't wanna look at my finances because they're a wreck. I don't wanna look at my marriage because then I might have to leave it. I don't want to look at my children and admit that parts of me feel resentful that I was a mother so young. I'm not talking about myself, I'm just saying in general. And so rather than asking why the anxiety, like you said, you could box breathe and drop your shoulders and sort of force your physiology, yeah. but if you're in this physiological state, you're not going to get to the why from the same physiology that got you anxious. So first order of business is not why the anxiety, it's what 
will help me feel a little safer in this moment. But people take themselves out of that game by arguing, well, I shouldn't feel unsafe right now. This is dumb. I have plenty of money and a beautiful family and medical insurance. I shouldn't be feeling this. It's like, but you are. So let's not waste, just from an energy conservation efficiency point of view, let's not yeah. debate why it is. Let's just go with, let's get you out of this physiological state. And once you I live high up in the Rocky Mountains where the air is clean and fresh as possible, but then I step indoors and I'm breathing in untold amounts of toxins and allergens from paint and carpet and cleaning chemicals and pets and furniture and appliances and mold and so on. Studies show the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air anywhere you are. And in some places it's a hundred times worse than that. Well, the solution is to get an air purifier and air doctor is just the best out there. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen and pet dander and dust mites and mold and even bacteria and viruses so your lungs don't have to try to do that. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com. You can use the promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get the special deal, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash Kevin. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is a, an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they're hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. 
I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. We're out of that state, then we can do the very scary, like looking inward. But you can't look inward when your physiology is going haywire. It's just not possible. And so, in that sense, anxiety is actually very tempting because as long as I'm spinning in anxiety, I don't have to do any introspecting or any challenging of my assumptions or any deconstructing of my relationships. And it's not, I mean, I had to burn my life to the ground and start from nothing. Most people don't need to do that. And so, I tell people, like, the likelihood that you're going to have to destroy everything is pretty small. so let's start looking at what's really going, what's really bothering the question, what's actually bothering you is one I ask almost every day in my office to very high achieving people, to a lot of male clients. And it's amazing if you ask the question, everyone knows what's up. Most people know really? what's bothering them. Do, do they know it right? Do they, how often do they know it right when you say, okay, what's really up? How often can they come back and state it? Or does it take you a couple levels of that question to get to it? Which? Couple levels because it's such a threatening question. Well, what's really bothering me is I have a multi-million dollar company that I don't want to be part of anymore. What's What's really bothering me is that my marriage of twenty five years is on the rocks, and I I want more, and my partner isn't meeting me there. What do I do? And so we have to take the threat out of that question in order to be able to answer it, and that takes a little bit of extra levels and some extra work. You do say that you were citing a minute ago when somebody, you know, is having this anxiety and they look at their life and think, I shouldn't be having that. Can we relate that to, and it's your definition of a trauma response, when your body reacts, it's reacting now in the absence of a real threat. It's something that's, you know, yeah, in, in the past, which is that fair? Yes. And I always tell people before you assume that there's something wrong with you, first, Take a quick assessment. If you, you know, during the pandemic, people would come in and say, I have depression. I'm like, do you really? Or is it that you're in quarantine? You haven't seen anyone. You haven't hugged anyone in weeks and weeks and weeks. And your physiology is responding like it's supposed to. There's a threat to humanity right now. So that's, that's a reasonable reaction. Assuming that there is no reasonable reaction thing happening, then it's safe to assume that there's an injury. And again, the injury, I, the injury approach to mental health and wellness is a lot more palatable because it makes sense. It's like, you know, there's no, I don't know any men who won't go deal with their knee injury or who won't go, you know, do PT if they've got a shoulder thing, but mental health, oh my God. It's like, well, what if mental health is just PT for your brain and your nervous system? And that that really, really helps because then we don't have to dig in the past. We don't have to go re-examine everything that happened in your childhood. We don't have right. to get mad at your parents, but we need to acknowledge like, I don't know why your ankle is broken, but somewhere you broke it. So let's focus a little, you know, the rear view mirror is small, but it's necessary. The windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror, but we do need both to a degree. 
Okay, we saw a couple of times you said, you know, it's come up that this thing, it may be offensive to people uh, or, or, or whatnot. Another one that, that is that makes sense, but I don't want to hear it, is you would say, Kevin, you're getting a reward out of your anxiety. You're getting a reward out of holding on to it and not digging into it. No, nobody on planet Earth wants to hear that. And yet, as I read in your book, I mean, yeah, totally. I'm getting a, it's a crappy reward. It's a bitter reward. But saying that the reason I am not digging out of it is because there's something I'm getting into it. Now, honestly, I looked at that and I thought of some specific areas, Britt, and I, and, and I've got, I got to dig further to get into that because I look at it and go, yeah, I obviously must be one plus one equals two. If I'm still holding on to it, I'm still not going forward. I must be, I'm not even sure is that, or am I missing something there? Is there, is there some point to where you can go? Yeah, I must be getting a reward, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Or can you fairly quickly dig into, uh, unearthing that? So the reward thing, the idea that all behavior is not acceptable, but all behavior is functional. And if you weren't getting something out of it, you wouldn't be doing it. People get so offended by this. It's like, how did, and I'll use myself. I was in a, a, a domestically abusive relationship. I'm not saying I deserved it. I am saying the yucky truth about that is that part of me benefit, benefited from that. As long as I was with someone that was so quote bad, I could just focus on that and not deal with, well, what about this relationship made sense to me? And what about my past made this seem like a good choice? Why is it still a good choice? And so what we need to do in order to answer the question, what's the benefit is take the shame off of it. You know, it's like, oh my God, I benefited from my drug addiction. Okay. So like, let's take all the emotionality and the morality. It's like in business, you do a cost benefit analysis. You're going to see how your columns stack up and we need to be able to take the shame out of it and just get really, really honest with what are the, what could the benefits possibly be of drug addiction? I can count them. Energy conservation. If I'm high on opiates, I can just sleep my life away and I don't have to expend any energy doing a damn thing. Um, image preservation. If I am continuing this behavior of workaholism and not sleeping and not paying attention to my kids, my community who has esteemed me because of this behavior is going to see me differently. So there are there's financial you know, resources. If I don't risk starting a business, I don't have to risk failing and re being rejected and losing money. And so this, what are the, we all can count the costs. What are the costs of not being fit, of being not connected to other people? We all know that, but no one wants to look at the benefit column. And we have to look at the benefit column because that is where our solutions are going to be found. If I know that the function of my addiction is avoiding my truth, then I know that part of my medicine is going to be finding a safe person to explore what was true about my life. So we have to be willing to look at benefits without shame. You don't have to beat yourself up. It is what it is. Nah. So let's just look at it, deal with it and fix it. Goodness. Okay. I'm going to, we're going to back up to a 10,000 foot view now because you know, I mean, we, you mentioned COVID. We've talked about that a couple of times that when we, as I'm reading your you know, your research and your understanding of these issues, I, it brings me to think, why are we in the mental health crisis we are now? Why do we feel more threatened than ever? Because if we go back, you know, to whenever, the threat was a saber-toothed, you know, tiger and grog next door who might spear me or, you know, a poisonous uh, frog or whatever. I mean, it's, it's very tangible. Is that is that part of the, the thing? Because it was so tangible in our face and now 
there's not the big blatant threats. They're more innocuous and we're more blind to them. I'm sitting here kind of answering or trying to dig around. Why though? Because I look at it and go, we should, we have more reason than ever to not be, feel threatened by anything. And it seems like we're at the worst place we've ever been. I call this the, to simplify that answer, because the mental health crisis is not only, but there's so much misinformation. How are you supposed, if you ask a hundred people what anxiety is, you're going to get a hundred different answers. If we can't all All agree on the nature of the problem, of course, we're going to have a crisis. I call it the spider web problem. If you see somebody walk into a spider web, you're, and you don't know that there's a spider web there, you're going to watch someone just sort of doing their thing and then just go bananas freaking out for no reason. Like everyone turns into a ninja when they walk into a spider web. And if you don't know that there's a web there, they're going to look a little nuts. If as soon as you know, oh, that person just walked into a cobweb, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. We have a cobweb problem, not a mental health problem. Like we don't have a ninja problem. We have a web problem. And like you said, even though it's not saber tooth tigers and poisonous dart frogs, there are a lot of, quote, to our brains, threats because our brains are not fast enough to keep up with technology, to keep up with AI, to keep up with the demands of a 24 seven news cycle and all of the work we need to do. So again, we can argue about why my brain shouldn't feel threatened. I have so much available to me. Okay, but your brain is. So we have to go with what your brain is actually perceiving and interpreting. And the lions are still there. We just call them by different names. Disconnection, loneliness, isolation, overworking, chemical indulgence. There are a lot of lions around us. But if we don't know that the lions or the spider webs are there, we're just going to freak out and then call it a crisis. Yes, people are suffering. I'm not minimizing that. Yes, there's a crisis. But it's not what we think it is. It's not that everyone suddenly has a disease. It's that everyone is running into spider webs and they don't know it. Well, you're, I'm, I'm scrolling down here in my notes and your, your statement to, or one of them to trauma is, I have it in quotes right out of the book, simply a clinical way of saying your brain is overwhelmed. Well, everybody attests to that. I don't care what it's, and again, I'm going to pick on guys, how, you know, valiant and strong and awesome and whatever you think you are anybody's going to attest to being overwhelmed. So you may not, you know, they may not connect to emotions and trauma and whatever, but overwhelmed, if you're saying being overwhelmed, mentally overwhelmed is a form of trauma. That is, I mean, who's not? It's got, I mean, that's, we're literally everybody. I'm interested all of a sudden though, Britt, and I'm going to ask you this. I hadn't put these dots together until now. Mental health crisis. We're going to attribute anxiety, the issue of anxiety around a lot of that. You're saying, first person I've ever heard say it, maybe you're not the only, but the first one I have, that it's a body response, that these are, these are the body issue, not a, a logic issue. This is a body issue. What about then if we look at how, I mean, there's got to be a correlation, of course, and I'll ask your input on it, of just our ill health. I mean, you know that chronic illness and disease, I don't care what it is right now. We are eating and living ourselves into diabetes and heart disease and autoimmune and hormone, blah, 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 blah. So our bodies are literally compromised. Then that would, by proxy, wouldn't it take away our body's ability to do what it's supposed to do anyways? And of course, we would be having more anxiety. Did I just put that together right? 
You put that exactly right. And a lot of people don't know that your serotonin, and I'm going to simplify this. So if you're a neuroscience person listening, I'm intentionally being reductive. Your serotonin, your happy juice, your calm, everything is good in the world juice is manufactured in your gut. So if someone comes in and they're drinking five Red Bulls a day and their diet is fast food, you can pump all the antidepressants you want into your brain, but your serotonin is manufactured in your gut. And so this idea that physical well-being is separate from mental well-being is just not accurate because your brain, I mean, another way to say trauma is when your brain gets stuck in a state of fight, flight, or freeze. And that will happen if you're not taking care of your nutrition needs and your sleep hygiene and your need for physical movement and connection. They're largely intertwined. It's like a chicken and an egg thing, but either way, they both matter. The fastest way to help your mental health is to take care of your food, sleep, and working out like that. It's not the cure-all, but those are the easiest three to start boosting. You know, you can have, again, all of the amazing serotonin in the world, but if your stomach is off and your GI tract is all messed up, you're not going to get it to your brain. Your brain is attached to your body. You cannot differentiate the two. I love that. It makes me think of, yeah, if you, you know, you're in danger and you need to run from the saber tooth tiger, but your feet are stuck in mud, you can't run. You, you should have the ability, but you're stuck in mud. Well, so I want to pull everybody who's listening back to a month ago, two months ago, uh, prior to this episode, we did a series with Dr. Will Cole on his book, Gut Health. And that's what he is getting to the philosophy and how that relates. So bring that right back up here to if you're dealing with anxiety and yeah, you're taking it into a body response and how seldom do we look at our body as a result of that. I know that one of my main medication, honestly, the main medication is a run or a ride. Uh, which I may not be again, though, I, now I'm looking at you thinking, uh, yeah, but I'm dealing with the body part of it. I'm not getting to the root issue. Fair. It's a step. It's a step. Fair. Anything. So I do circus performing. That's my version of, you know, so I do aerial arts. Now there is oh. a degree to which doing that allows me to not think because you can't think you're spinning around, you're up in the air, you're yeah. either trying not to puke or trying to do pull-ups upside down while you're spinning. It's yeah. a very effective way to just get centered. However, there is a degree to which if I know I should be journaling, but I'm going to my aerial gym to spin, then that's avoiding. So if you're paying attention to your own inner world, you can tell the line between when a run is medicinal or when a run is more of an addiction avoidance kind of a thing. And same thing with like eating healthy. I had eating disorders. There's a degree to which eating healthy can become its own problem if you take it too far down one path. So some days for me, eating a cheeseburger is the healthiest thing I can do. Um, but we need to be able to really ask ourselves, not just I'm going to go for a run. It's what is this run doing for me today? Am I aware that I'm using it to avoid? There's nothing wrong with avoidance if you're doing it consciously and you plan to return to the, I don't want to deal with my stuff today, so I'm just going to run. Okay, cool. But make sure you come back tomorrow because it's not going anywhere. That, and yeah, that's what I was picking at. I, that, that is my propensity. Uh, you said an, an addiction avoidance by running. I can use that for running, riding, yeah, eating, cooking, music. I've got all my things, which is why I've had more than one therapist say, dude, next time the feeling comes, would you please sit in it? Do not go for a run. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's not my favorite thing to do, which, okay, so I'll use myself as an example because then the, the issue comes down to, and I wasn't going to jump to this yet. I was going to leave it for the end, the ugly end, uh, and, and talk about, you know, really our responsibility, which you talk about a lot, which you talk about a volatile statement or, or, or topic. And I'm going to use the word agency because it is a curious thing of when, I mean, we all say we want X, we want to be better. We want to feel better. We want to do better. Uh, we want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. And yet so seldom, I shouldn't say that, but it's so often that we won't take responsibility to do that. And it's such a, it's such a dichotomy of, okay, we know that we have some cap uh, some capacity to do some things. And yet we're so reticent to take agency. I don't know the psychiatry of that, Britt, of, of understanding. It, it, it seems dumb. Does that go back to the rewards issue or is there something else? So sometimes it's the reward, but the well that you just uncovered is a deep mm -hmm. one. And again, yeah. this isn't true for everyone, but it's it's true enough. It's, it's the thing that we are reticent to take ownership because as soon as we do, we have to contend with the fact that no one's coming to rescue us. If you didn't have caring, capable parents in childhood, you just don't get to experience what it's like to be taken care of. And again, people are not always conscious of this. You have to do a lot of digging to get to this. But we, many of us really push hard against the, well, I, I don't think it's fair. I want someone to help me. I want someone to do it for me. And that's a very developmentally young state of mind. And the problem with grief is people think grieving is only when someone dies and we suck at that as a culture anyway, but we have to grieve that childhood is over. Your inner child, that's a whole nother topic. Like that's a thing. But your chronological years where you get to be taken care of and fully unconditionally loved and supported, if you got that, cool. I don't know many people who did, but you got what you got. And so part of taking agency is recognizing no one is coming to save you. Yes, we need other people. Yes, we need loved ones and support and encouragement, but no one is coming to save you. And ultimately that's good news because it means as soon as you're ready, you have agency. But man, I had a hard time with that one. I was like, no, surely this time someone will love me well. Someone will take care of me. Someone will see me because once I take ownership, then I admit game over. I lost. I don't get a, to redo childhood. And then we go through the grieving of that developmental stage, but we're not taught. You have to grieve the end of every developmental stage. Now, elderly people are connected with this because if you get into depression in older adults, they're grieving that their youth is gone and that they may not have done all the things they wanted to do. But anytime there's a change, any change, even if it's a good change, that means that something is over, something is lost, and that requires some degree of conscious grieving. And it's often our refusal to grieve our losses that is the very, very yucky, quiet truth underneath all of the things that ail us. Goodness. Yeah, you're, that's deep water because, I mean, you're mm -hmm. looking at having to accept our, our lacks, the voids, the things we didn't get. And then from those that there are some weaknesses, which again, I don't, I just don't want to do. Uh, I, I want to avoid that thought. And, you know, even looking at this, Britt, 
like the the concept of you know the, the motivational type thing of hey you can do and be anything and that's crap i mean you you just can't i mean you can try it but you're going to suck at a lot of things you're only going to be really great at a few things uh, and, and it's overwhelming to tell a kid that you can go be anything i th think it's just glazed eyes in this it's not a perfect analogy but i, I feel that with this of saying my mental health this anxiety, these things I'm dealing with, I have agency over and I, I can't rely. Now I can get help and guidance, but I can't rely on somebody else. It's, 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 it is on me should on one hand be very empowering and freeing and, and, and opportunistic and awesome. But on the other hand, it's also just, it's, it's overwhelming, which you would say, and that's trauma. I mean, we've got a vision. We can't, can we have a vicious cycle even in that? Yeah. Absolutely. And again, I, M. Scott Peck defines mental health as a commitment to reality at all costs. And I really love that. The reality is I am never going to be a, an American ballet theater prima ballerina. Like that's just not in the cards for me. And that's okay. But I get to be sad about that. And most people will minimize, well, it's dumb. I shouldn't think this way. I shouldn't feel this way. But you, you do get to grieve. And not only do you get to, it's important that you do and that you do look at your humanity again without shaming yourself but like here are things that are never going to be available to you ever even good things like let's say you have all the time all the money all the resources everything is like sunshine and rainbows uh there's still not enough time to do everything you're capable of doing and so like i'm sure for you and for me there's lots of things i'd be interested in like libraries make me really sad because when i'm in them i see that there are just entire bodies of work that i'll never have time to learn or know anything about yeah. And so anything we say yes to means we've said no to 20 other things. And again, we're not fluent in the grieving process. And so of course we're going to end up with anxiety and depression and spinning around in addictions and dysfunction. So step one, put the fire in your brain out. There are ways to metabolize your trauma, your experiences. So your brain is not on fire. Once you put the fire out, then we go inside and we align your inner board of directors. So everyone is in agreement and no one's screaming at each other. Then from there, the intention action gap shrinks. And that's where you say you want to get fit. You go to the gym. You say you want this much money. You launch the business. You say you want this relationship. You go to therapy and figure out why you're avoidant. The intention action gap shrinks when we do that. Goodness. I, I do want to hit on your grieving just selfishly. It's it's one that's on my mind. It, it, again, it's never been a part of my vernacular, Brit. Grieve, again, what? I, I didn't have anything wrong. And and even being honest with it today, I, I you know, some key points that that come out some are, are grieving. Uh, I grieve. I was a pro cyclist and I grieve how mediocre of a pro cyclist I was. I was so uncommitted to it. I was so uncoachable. And and I think it helps, and you probably know why, and I don't. In some version, it does help to grieve that and just admit it, just to admit it and grieve it. First world problem, maybe, but it was, it was something that, that bothers me. I can look at now and grieve. I have a little grieving of, I have a huge family that I adore. I wouldn't change anything in there. And yet grieving, it's a lot of work. And there's a lot of things that I haven't done and I'm not going to be able to do for a while, maybe ever. And to be able to grieve that, it doesn't, it doesn't, invalidate it how maybe that's it how do you do that because i don't want i don't want to invalidate to take a position right now and say no gosh i wouldn't do without that person especially with a relationship that person or that experience whatever doesn't invalidate it but gosh it, it did it was hard or it kept me from doing some other things what's that balance between is that fair grieving and invalidating 
Yes. I'm just playing with. Yes. I mean, it takes so much effort to be at war with ourselves. And again, just because you're grieving does not mean you've made a bad decision. So like, let's say you have your kids and you love, I've heard this from every parent I have ever sat in my office across from. Every single one has said the same thing. Love my kids, would do anything for them. I would die for them. And there are days where I kind of like miss just it being just me. That doesn't mean that they made a bad decision. That doesn't mean that now they're stuck in this regret spiral. It just means there's actually room for more than one reality. We're so reductive in thinking it has to be just one way. It's the same thing with our personality. Like our personality is not the singular thing. We all know part of me feels this way and part of me feels this way. And when you can create space for multiple things to be true at once, I love my family. I would never want to do it differently. And parts of me are like, oh my God, this is a lot of work. And oh, on Christmas, how nice would it be to just jump on a plane and sit on a beach somewhere instead of doing the presents and the family and the dinners and all of that. You know, I've chosen to be child free. I don't have kids. And I'm very happy with that decision. And my husband and I have a wonderful life. But of course I had to grieve that motherhood was something that I, I still don't wish for it. I, do, I don't regret my decision. But that was something I did have to grieve because that was something I was saying no to. Even though that wasn't the right choice for me, it's still a loss. And so again, we can argue, well, this shouldn't be a thing and I love my life. And it's like, okay, but multiple things can be true at once. You can love your family and you can be mad at them. You can love your kids and you can wish that you didn't have any some days. It doesn't mean you made a bad call. So we need to be able to uncouple what we actually feel from the implications. Like, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means you have feelings and you're a complex human and there's room for you to feel seven different things simultaneously. You're not hypocritical. You're just a a person who has complex feelings and that needs to be okay. I, Britt, thank you. And I love what you said just in regards to being at war with ourselves. That is a topic in and of itself that that has been, that's probably one of my primary anxiety issues is being at war with myself, not being able to marry two seemingly dissimilar things. And, and I do want to come, I do want to hit on the aspect of reality because you've mentioned it twice in the past 10 minutes one and you pulled out and i said i had seen it in the book m scott peck's uh statement of be, having a commitment to reality at all costs and i even wrote in the in the margins of the book i kind of did a question mark on reality because that's an issue and then you just said now we need to make room for more than one reality and thus the rub of here we are in anxiety you use the example of um of uh, of running and uh, earlier running and, and what your reason is behind that. For some reason, as I was making notes and, and reading the book, Britt, I had the idea of, I don't even know why I came up with it, but the locker room, high school locker room. There's going to be some, some people who are going to look at that and oh my gosh, it's one of the, it's the glory days, man. It's the, it's the best thing ever was a locker room. <clears throat> okay. I did that a little bit too. Wasn't anything big traumatic. It just wasn't my gig, man. It stunk. It was a bunch of obnoxious guys, you know. So I, I went to a solitary sport, you know, not that, but a different perspective. Somebody has a horrific perspective on a locker room, like rape or, or something, you know, unfathomable there. And we've got different realities. So we have an objective reality of that's a locker room. Then we have the stories around that that's going to cause one person immense elation and some person is in the bowels of trauma and anxiety. And we're not going to invalidate that by just going, oh, just paint a different story in regards there. But 
we do have to reconcile it some way. Go there for a minute. Which is why I have a problem with affirmations when they're used to sort of like hypnotize ourselves out of what we know. I am good and I am great and I am the best person and everyone like kind of like that staring in the mirror parody that they did, I think, on SNL. And, you know, I really like going to what's true. Let's do truthful affirmations. What's true is that in that locker room could be both the glory space and the trauma space, because a lot of times both good things and bad things happen to the same right. person in the same space. So let's say someone was assaulted in a locker locker room, but that locker room was also the first time they felt part of a team. Then they come to me and they're like, well, how do I make sense of this space? How do I reconcile the two? You don't reconcile them. You just create a container where both are coexisting. One doesn't cancel out the other. We don't need to reconcile and somehow get to this zero sum results. It's the locker room was one of the greatest places of your life. Their locker room was one of the worst places of your life. If we replace the word like either or and but with the word and, and is a great equalizer. The locker room was awful and it was it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And again, that, that brings so much relief because to have this binary thinking of it's this or this takes a lot of energy that takes a lot of brain bandwidth. So let's not fight. Let's just, okay, part of me feels this way. And part of me feels this way. And then I call it like, you know, your team captain in your, or the CEO in your head, whatever metaphor you like. Then now that you have all of these things being what they are, what choice makes the most sense for you? You know, you may choose never to go in a locker room again. You may choose to coach your kid's soccer team and sort of renegotiate what it means to be in a locker room. There are a lot of options. We need to know for you, what are your options of those? What makes sense for you to do today? But you can't get to that if you're like, it's this or this. Like, no, we have room for both. Well, okay. You said what makes sense. And I'm thinking of it's got to be a story or a perspective that you can accept. There's got to be a level of honesty and authenticity uh, and truth for it to you. And yet, and I was looking through my notes and I can't find it. You said something in the book and, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, but then also, but what is the, what is the, the, the story, the perspective you take out that's going to be the most life giving? You didn't say life giving. That's what I'm, but it's going to be the most beneficial for you. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. And I'll, okay. I haven't shared this anywhere in the book on any shows, but I'll say it here. Yeah. Um, I'll regret, I'll have a vulnerability hangover tomorrow and go, Oh okay. no, what have I done? So yeah. I got, I got married two years ago and my husband is a wonderful giving like normal person. Like he just generally eats when he's hungry and he sleeps when he's tired and he works out and he rests and he knows how to play. It's bizarre to me. Uh -huh. So we got married in a city where I was in one of the most violent relationships that almost cost me my life. And I intentionally wanted to, and he knows this, we talked about it. I wanted to renegotiate because the city was a really beautiful city and it had a really beautiful like mountain. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And I didn't want forever this place to be the place where these bad things happen. And so we talked about it. I processed it. And now when I think about that mountain, that mountain is where I married the love of my life. It's not where I was sexually assaulted. Now, that's not something that everyone should do. That made sense for me where I'm at in my life, given my choice points. But it's both and that still happened. I'm not like gaslighting myself out of the reality that that happened to me there. But when I look at pictures of that mountain, I don't cringe. I don't have flashbacks. I don't get kind of like that gross feeling. I just smile because I got to take it back for me. And that's an option I didn't know was available to me until I did this work. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I I want it pulls me back as you talk about your husband and him being like I don't know what you said you know he's kind of just normal he just does what he wants it's, it's, it's so yeah. it's so well I you know I've got I've got nine kids and we have uh I, I, we have one in particular he won't even mind his name's Ian that's my he's one of my sons he's eighteen and he's like the poster child for the family who's very in tune to a lot of what we're talking here he's like the normal like how can he just he's just good with everything. And, you know, God bless him. I, I have no idea why. And I have no idea why, you know, some, he may have a sibling on both sides of him who may struggle more with others, that it just is to not vilify that. And I want to go back, though, to yeah, the interesting thing and, and maybe giving ourselves grace for what you said and in the issue of being able to, um, you didn't say the word assimilate, metabolize, that again, the X happens. And some people can just metabolize it. And it just is. Let's not, and if you can't, then you just can't. I, I feel like that's just so dramatic for all this of saying it doesn't matter. I mean, we want to get into why you can't and, and whatever, but to not judge that, that's where, and I guess I'm saying that because that's where I've been stuck. Again, I don't want to be weak. I don't want to admit that there's a limit or a lack or, or an excuse. I mean, I grew up in, you know, no excuses. And that was great for sports. No excuses, man. The finish line's up there. I don't care if you lost both your legs, you know, blow, blow behind you to accelerate, go forward. No excuses. Okay, great. Doesn't work in life overall. Uh, doesn't work in relationships overall. And if you can't metabolize X, then that's where you need to stick for now and figure out how to, or how to, how to manage that. How do you look? I love, I love that you said no excuses. Cause the other pushback I get from people is, well, you're just justifying people being lazy. And it's like, no, an explanation does not 
equal, like explanation is not a synonym for excuse. I can explain the benefits of why I did X, Y, and Z. It doesn't excuse it. It's, it's an explanation. And what you're talking about, this idea of our metabolism, you know, I wish I could metabolize food and, you know, recover from sports like other people, but it's not just like, I just have to accept that I'm limited and I'm weak. It's like, it's not that it's knowing that this is how my metabolism functions. What choices can I make to best support? it. When I was 25, I could live on a diet of cigarettes and French fries and methamphetamines. Like, can't do that now. Now I know at my age, if I want to perform, especially doing circus stuff, which like no 43 year old has any earthly business doing, I need to eat a certain way. I need to support my metabolism in a certain way. I need to support my physiology so I can do what I want. And our mental health, if we can put it in that box of you're not weak, it's just, this is what it is. How do we best support given what you want to do? How do we best support your physiology so that that becomes possible versus fighting with why is it hard? Like, I don't know why it's hard. Who cares why it's hard? I mean, it matters, but like, let's just make it less hard. You know, your metabolism sucks. Fine. Let's fix that so you can do what you want to do. And I found most people don't actually need to know why. Once you get up and running, the point is you're up and running. You know, why is an interesting question, but it's almost, I won't say never, but it's often just not. The, the right question is not why this, the right question is what am I willing to say yes to so that I can get moving in the direction that I choose as fast as humanly possible. Okay. You made a statement. Well, shoot, I'm going to have to come back to, cause I don't want to miss you. You talked about being lazy. Uh, use that word, which is literally page 54 of your book. Uh, laziness and lack of motivation are not bad habits. They are trauma responses. Okay, I'm curious about that because Britt, I talk about that to a degree in in my in my book, What Drives You, of saying that lazy person, I, I believe they have my experiences, they have all the drive they need within them. They're, we need a we need a trigger. It's in there because we've all experienced somebody who went from that lazy person to driven overnight. They didn't need a year of therapy or self-help lessons or whatever. They just found a, a reason that was dire to them, which may have been, again, just a, a, a dawning that, oh my gosh, just a revelation, realization in the moment, or it may have been some big event. But now this is, you know, I'm sure you can relate. I, I hope you can, that so often you want to, can I, can I go back and add something to the book publisher um, to say they're, they're probably there and at least because of a trauma response, if they can get past that, then we can find all the drive that they want. But I've never heard that said. Again, this is another paradigm shift even that laziness, lack of motivation, not bad habits. They have they are a trauma response. Unpack that a little bit. Okay. So I can like feel people getting all growly hearing this. I, so again, yes, I know. I know. That's why I pulled it out. I see you person listening to this in your car. I am not saying it's okay to sit on the couch doing nothing. Right. Again, an explanation is not an excuse. I'm going to give you two examples of where laziness and lack of motivation are not character defects or they're not what we think they are. Number one, someone who is working 70 hours a week launching a business. They also have three kids. They also have aging parents. They also have meetings and people depending on them for their livelihood. Okay, great. It's the end of the day. They have been grinding nonstop for six weeks. 
they're laying on the couch thinking, oh, I should really go to the gym. I finally have a free night. Why am I so lazy? I just don't feel motivated. Like that's functional, you know, trauma response. Again, just think of it as brain indigestion. Right now, that person has been so inundated with life that their system is locked down in a state of freeze or shutdown. So, and there's like a nerve in your head that's responsible for that. It's like it's called the dorsal vagal complex for sciency people. And so that person doesn't have a character defect, nor are they suffering from lack of motivation. It's that laziness quote is a response to overwhelming stimulus that has now zapped their brain of all its gas. So there's nothing in the tank. So that's one example. The other one, I had a parent come to me and they're like, my 18 year old is so lazy. You know, he lays on the couch playing video games and he's smoking pot all day. And I just don't know how to get this kid motivated. It's like, okay, that's not a trauma response. So what's going on there? Well, who's paying for that kid's food? Who's paying for the video game console? Who is enabling him to continue to? So if we're looking at cost benefit, if we're going to itemize how much money you are giving him by giving him a couch to sit on, a PlayStation to play on, a house to live in, food to eat and pot to smoke, you know, like dollar for dollar, that kid's actually better off mooching off of you than going and working for a job where he's not going to make very much money. It's not that he's lazy. It's just that you're enabling him and you're making it too easy for him to choose inertia. Because I guarantee you, if like he had to earn his rent, his food, all of the things, he would be making different choices or she, I'm just whatever. But sometimes laziness is because we're not looking at the benefit column. Sometimes it's a trauma response. And sometimes it's because we're deluding ourselves. And the biggest one of these is it's easier for me not to go to the gym. I'll go tomorrow. Like that's a lie. You are not going to go tomorrow. It's also a lie that it's easier. It's hard to go to the gym. It's also hard to feel profoundly unwell. It's hard to look at your finances, but it's also hard to be broke and not know which way is up. It's like, choose your heart. As long as you believe that there's an easy way, your brain is wired to def. Our brains aren't wired for success. Our brains are wired for survival. So if you're deluding yourself into thinking there's an easy choice, of course your brain's gonna do that. That's how brains brain. So choose your heart is a great way to reframe this. It's so much easier not to go to the gym. No, it's not. It's hard to go. It's hard not to go. Choose your heart. You know, so that's a much better way to get to your motivation if you frame it and tee it up accurately. Uh, it's thank you. No, it's it's great because I'm thinking about that in some areas. I have no problem with choosing the heart. I mean, I know that my <clears throat> investment in my health and wellness so that I'm, you know, vital and vibrant and capable and whatever. I love it. I love feeling capable and having energy and stuff. I love that. It were easy. Now money. That's one where I don't like to screw with it. It's too hard. I don't want to deal with budgeting. I don't want to deal with financial projections. I don't want to do that. Do that. Well, it's also hard to, to sabotage your business, which that's part of my own story over and over and over with no financial plan, with no financial management. Now to do that, I haven't, and this is an interesting one, put that and put this into context, Britt. I haven't become, hmm. I'm just going to say it and you can dissect it. Okay. <laughs> Cause I'm thinking out loud. Okay. Yeah. Vita therapist. Uh, this is a free session. I uh, know you can invoice me later. That's cool. Um, is that I would say, I don't feel more motivated by money. I don't know that I have a healthier relationship with it. I think I do. I want to, but I mainly just said, man, I'm not good at it. 
I'm going to delegate it. And now I have people who I partnered with in my business who have that plus a bookkeeper and a CPA firm and a whatever. So I'm getting the results that I want, even though I don't feel maybe it comes back to that aspect of overcoming to overcome something. You have to, you know, totally eradicate it or become a king in it. And I think no, I just figured out a way to manage my weakness. Play with that. Oh, I, I have the same thing. Okay. Um, I have zero interest in understanding markets and investments and bookkeeping and taxes and whatnot. And so is it that you're overcoming your weakness or is it that you're being really smart and strategic in delegating? Now, that said, and my financial analyst is also a therapist, so right. it's helpful because he understands the nuances. And we talk about it's fine to delegate. I don't need to know every single bit of the tax code. But I can't just be a princess and be like, you guys do it for me. I don't want to deal because that is doing myself a disservice. I don't have to be the best at financial fluency, but I need to have enough of an understanding that I can at least see, are they making good choices on my behalf? Do I understand the decisions that are being made? And it's very easy for me to get into the myth of I have good people and they'll take care of it for me. Like, yeah, I do, but I am an adult and ultimately like my bank account is what funds my life. And I don't need to know all of it, but I should probably develop a little bit of muscle strength in understanding this to a degree. And then that's just an honest assessment. How much do I understand about my financial portfolio? And like, is that working for me? Do I need to know a little bit more? Maybe I could read a book or listen to a podcast. Yeah. And what's it costing me to not know this? And then what is it benefiting me to not know this? But that one is a little easier. It's like, it's going to cost me more to not know it than to know it. And yeah. so I'll suck it up and read a freaking book on it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to question whether I'm trying to be the princess or not here. So I'm going to <laughs> um, you know, but to bring this back again to our, I mean, if, you know, my focus here has been anxiety. It's the one that bothers me, Britt, my own anxiety that I tend to be just kind of, you know, high strong, if you want to say with that, that I can have anxiety. Yeah. About the exciting thing, uh, just as much as the worrying thing, but that either way, if it's anxiety, if I am not digesting these things, well, it is, it's taking its toll. It's going to manifest. There's going to be a hard, so I don't want to do this work now, but I'm, you know, I, I'm at the age I'm 52. Oh, go, man, these things, I, well, I've met the end of some of them. I've met the manifestation of the burnout of the bitterness of those things. And so I'm looking at it now and the cost, the fear of the cost, I guess, has increased. And now I'm looking at it going, man, this is going to, it's not benign. It's not going to go away. It's going to come out somewhere and that's going to be super hard. I, I'm not going to be able to withstand that. So now I need to come over here and yeah, realize back to what you said that the, this initial hard is not as hard as it's going to get. Fair. Can I ask you a question about that? Can I go into therapist mode for a second? <laughs> so I hear you talking about your anxiety. Are huh? you feeling anxious or are you feeling fear? So anxiety is just body sensations with like no identifiable source. I just feel activated. But are you feeling anxious or are you feeling fearful? I would imagine with nine kids, there's a lot of legitimate things to be fearful about. And no, so no, you're can... right. You, no, you got no, it's fear. It's fear of, um, Gosh, I, I probably have fear of dropping the ball, of not coming through. That would be top of the list. Um, I probably have, yeah, fear, fear of not being capable. There's probably sometimes fear, you know, just the imposter syndrome of, of being found out, even though 
I now know this is my happy place. And yet I still sometimes think I have no idea what I'm talking about, you know? And, and so there, there could be, there could be that fear of, um, of, uh, well, I was gonna say health, but even that's still a not, you can hear the threat of me of not coming through, of not being there for my family, uh, uh, for others and, uh, you know, fear of something falling through. I mean, when I, when COVID happened, I lost half my income, uh, advertisers pulled out. And so, no, it's probably, it is probably around, uh, a fear. Yeah. Which changes the ball game, right? Because if it's anxiety, if someone comes to me and says, I'm anxious about my life, there's yeah. really nothing, there's no strategy that we can apply because it's just anxiety is just a series of body sensations that are pointing towards a problem. But if we can take that anxiety physiology and now identify let's say seven specific fears, right? Then you put your fears in a column and then for each one, what are three choices to help mitigate the fear? Of those three, which one is the easiest one for you to do? And then before you know it, you have a legal pad with 10 really easy choices for you. Like there are solutions laying all over the ground, but we miss all of it because we're so focused on where we're stuck or what we can't do. It's like, but wait a minute, that's that's gonna be an easy get for you. So if we can turn, I tell people that, that I work with my goal with your anxiety is to take your anxiety and turn it into fear because fear we can intervene upon with strategy not everything wow. like i'm afraid of lightning killing me i can't do anything about that but we can come up with choice points with fear with anxiety there's nothing to be done it's like you're anxious you're activated your nervous system is lit up okay fear we can work with and that's incredibly comforting so i would encourage anyone if you're feeling anxious try to identify some specific fears and then find a yes related to it any yes of any size is going to help make that fear a little less sharp in your system that's almost a mic drop there brit <laughs> to to well seriously to turn your anxiety into fear who the heck says that turn your anxiety, but it again, takes it out of where we started this nebulous thing. Like, Oh, it found me, you know, genetically, or I, you know, I caught it at the supermarket, doggone it. Now I have anxiety, this thing, as opposed to you saying, no, it's, it's a result of something. So if we can come down to that generally, and I, if I hear you right, gen, are you going to say generally that anxiety is from a fear? Is that a blanket statement for the most part? Yeah. Okay. So that then the fear we can work on, but you're also saying there are things to do again, as opposed to just medicating that because there, uh, there's literally been, and this is not making it up. I've had little times of going, I wish I could just take a pill or flip a switch and just not be bothered with it because one, maybe I, well, what was the title of your book again? Something about being stuck. I think I feel stuck. So if I feel stuck and I don't feel like I can address anything, I don't have, if I feel like I don't have agency that I just want the feeling gone. So give me a medication, give me a glass of wine, give me a mountain bike ride, give me a something, but you're going to come, I assume you're going to come back here and go, no, no. If, if it's a fear, we can't just mask it. We can't just go put tape over the check engine light. We've got to deal with it. And then your work is going to be helping us understand options outside of feeling stuck. Yes. That all of the above and then and this is the yuck one but it's true the best anti-anxiety medication is grief because if we turn your anxiety into a fear underneath that fear is going to be you're powerless ultimately over what happens in the grander scheme of things and 
you're going to lose things. You're going to lose your youth, your health, people you love. That sounds so like just, and I'm not, you know, a negative person. It's just what's true. The best anti-anxiety medication is willingness to grieve what is. We can deal with fear. We can strategize our way through certain fears and we can minimize threats. There's a lot we can do, but the refusal to grieve, I think is probably the single greatest contributor to the anxiety problem. Huh. Okay. That's the second. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to, I get my titles for the shows here, but best anxiety medication is grief. We hit on grief, but you didn't state that, that those are huge statements. I mean, I guess you know that, but those are huge statements to me. And I have therapists on the show near weekly, but to turn your anxiety into fear, fear we can work on. And the best anti-anxiety medication is grief. I mean, that turns the tables on a lot of our methodologies of how we're going after this. Um, everybody's going to be calling you to see if they can, you can be their therapist. Uh, so we'll have to deal with that as well. Um, I, I, you know, I find myself, I just want to go study the book more. I mean, I've, I've been through it a lot, but on grief, I didn't, I didn't, I still didn't pull that out somehow. I, missed, I buried it. I buried it. Bury it? Don't call this episode grief. Cause no one wants to, if you, if people see the word grief, they freak out and it's like, no, that's not for me. It's like grief is not contagious by the way. But, um, I intentionally led, I opened the book with anxiety. I closed the book with strategy and I buried grief in like chapter nine in there. So okay. you have to dig to find it, but it's in there. Well, so there folks, I mean, shameless promotion, go get the book in it. Cause I want to dig some more. <laughs> I was reading this morning, the section on family and you've got so much. And I like the way that you tangibly put out each, each issue that I want to look at because you, uh, just, you know, to be candid, I look at course at my own upbringing, which was great. Mom and dad, they listened to the show. They know, they know though, uh, but they, they weren't perfect. As you say, nobody's perfect. So there's no way I can't have some trauma in my upbringing and there's no way I can't give my kids some trauma. And I feel like it's, it's maybe the, greatest saving grace that I have and joy as a parent today is as my kids are older now to be able to talk about it and go, guys, I'm so sorry. I, I've always said I brainwashed you. I, I didn't know not, how not to. You need to go get rebrainwashed. Now I'm going to say, guys, I traumatized you. You have trauma. I couldn't not. So read Brit's book and uh, start dealing with it. Uh, hey, you know, thank you. There's some other uh, issues and then I'm going to put them in part two of our, our, our episode two of our talk. Britt, thank you for this. Thanks for the paradigm shifts and the, uh, gosh, just your skill and insight into this and your humility and having walked it out yourself and with so many people. Thank you for being here. This has been a, uh, I would say a joy. It's been a revelation, honestly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, friends, this is part one with Britt Frank and this topic of anxiety. Her book again is The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. Coming up in the next episode, I ask, it's part two, I ask what drives Britt and we get into how she practices what she preaches in her own life and we further unpack this issue of anxiety and everything that you heard in the show today. Friends, thank you for tuning into Self Helpful, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. 